you know, coming from hip hop culture, which is often presented through a very oversaturated, oversexualized, oversensationalized lens, I knew that black and white treatment would bring it to a warm tone, a, a, a more vulnerable, heartfelt tone where, you know, the characters can't hide behind color. You know, they, it, you really just are confronted with a realistic human character. So I've been, I've been waiting to make this film my whole life, even when I didn't realize it. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Rada Blank's new comedic drama, The 40-Year-Old Version. Ms. Blank also stars in the film as Rada, a down-on-her-luck New York City playwright who is desperate for a breakthrough before 40. After reinventing herself as a rapper, she vacillates between the worlds of hip-hop and theater in order to find her true voice. The 40-Year-Old Version is Ms. Blank's feature directorial debut, and she was recently nominated for the DGA's First Time Feature Film Award for her work. She also directed the movie for television Sam Bow, Speechwriter. Ms. Blank spoke with fellow director Liesl Tommy about filming The 40-Year-Old Version in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello, DGA membership. Um, I am so, so honored and proud to be um, in community with Ms. Rada Blank. Um, Rada is the director of um, The 40-Year-Old Version, and um, she is also the writer, producer, and actor. Um, Rada and I have known each other for a very, very long time because we- A long time, four mates. In the American theater. Yeah. <laughs> in the American theater, but also <laughs> in an apartment building in Harlem. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> we were also neighbors while we were in the struggle. We both yes. had studios in um, what was basically like an old rooming house in Harlem. Mm -hmm. um, we were we had studios on the other opposite sides of our hallway, and we shared a bathroom. And sure did a studio that she shot her apartment in in. Um, her movie is the studio we lived in. Yep. Um, so we, we have a lot of history. I'm so proud of her. I'm so excited uh, to be in this chair right now on sharing a screen with her. Um, there's so much to talk about. So the first thing I guess I'm gonna ask you is I'm just gonna dive in. I just finished shooting a movie and I don't know how you wrote directed, produced, and starred in it. Because just directing my movie, just about end of my life. So I just need to know how you shifted hats. Were there any times when you were like, why do I have all four hats on? How did you find a way to, um, you know, maintain your authority as a director, also your, you know, your artistic vision as a writer, and then your vulnerability as an actor on set? Yeah. Um with a great therapist, Liesl. Um, no, I, I ask myself that question all the time. I mean, I, it was not easy and it, I'm still recovering, if that makes any sense. Like we shot this movie in August of 2020 for 20 days, 2019 for 20 days and one pickup day. Um, and I still sometimes feel like I'm not quite back to my mojo, like I'm still, a little tired um, and I'm sure like doing a year of promoting the films, <laughs> I never really got a rest in there. But um, I had to make like some real serious decisions because, you know, uh, 
I, I did work on the script for quite a while. So by the time we shot, it was where it was gonna be. There weren't gonna be any major developments or any new characters introduced. Um, but I found that when I got into the rehearsal process with the actors, like the actual people who would be embodying the characters, um, things just became sharper. And it, it felt like, okay, um, I will use this time to get the script in its best shape so that I can put it down and put it away and allow the other people to kind of take over. So, you know, just a little bit into pre-production, um, you know, deep into rehearsal is when I was fine tuning the script so I could put that away. And then I got some really great advice from one of my advisors at Sundance, um, Clark, I don't want to mess this up. Clark Johnson, Clark Johnson, um, who was one of my advisors who had also directed work that he had acted in. He'd done it in The Wire, but he'd also done it in Homicide, Life on the Street. And he said, do me a favor. When you are in a scene with your scene partner, let the director go, if that's possible. Let him go so that when you're in a scene together, you know, they've just said their line or you've said a line to them. And then when they speak, your your eyes are kind of scrutinizing them, which is not what the character would be doing with their scene partner. So I got little tips here and there about how to like really economize my, like really get clear about my time and the energy in terms of where I would direct it. Um, ultimately in the end, I think the dance became between the, the performer and the director. And because I hired actors I trusted and I had rehearsal time, there was not a lot of conversation about what was happening in the scene while we were doing it. Because I just, I had to let go at some point and I didn't wanna tire myself out. Um, the other thing I learned on set um, while being in the scene is like, I'm gonna look at the monitor to see the setup of the scene, to see maybe one version of a playback and then I'm gonna stop because every time I walk away to the monitor, I was shifting the energy between that I was building between me and my scene partner. And so um, what, what ended up happening is when there were moments that I were, wasn't in anything, oh my God, I was like a little piglet with wings. I was just so happy because I knew I could completely devote myself to being the eye behind the character and being completely available to the actors should they have any questions or doubts or stuff like that? But it was it was not easy, Weasel. It was not easy. And and can I just say congratulations to us both for like completing our first films this year and not dying? I know. Because what people know. don't know is that we leaned on each other. I mean, thank goodness for sisterhood and camaraderie. We leaned on each other a lot because, first of all, there are not a lot of people in our position, it's not like there are 50 black women film directors that we can call on, you know what I mean? Um, and also to be doing it as grown women starting film careers. And so we had it, me, you, Stella, you know, we would lean on each other, um, her being the vet, even though she was younger than us, her being the <laughs> vet in the group, you know, like congrats to us because we, <laughs> we made it. Major congrats. I mean, I wish that audiences could understand, people watching could understand those lean years in that studio that we went through. 
the the times when we really felt such despair about mm. getting our work seen and done. Um, but you know, I I also just want to for a minute talk about um, I know Rada as as a playwright um, and performer. So I have seen some of some of my favorite theatrical productions were Rada's Seed is a play that she, you know, that she wrote that still haunts me today. It's, it, the character was so evocative. The story was so profound. Um, and I was fortunate enough to direct her with, um, in a play called Happy Flower Nail, um, which is an incredible one woman play that she wrote about women in a nail salon in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you. And I've seen, um, I saw um, 40 year old version, you know, uh, when she performed it live as a one woman show in New York at the public, at Joe's Pub, um, and to, you know, just to see the realize the self-actualization that she has, that she has achieved is just so moving, so profound because, you know, it takes so much strength to believe in yourself, to, to get yourself to this place. Um, and it's, it's, it's profound. Um, Thank so you. I want to talk, I want to talk about, um, given this journey, this long, long journey, what was day one on the set? like for you? First thing you shot day one on the set. Yeah. So you know how like biologically we have a set of buttocks, right? <laughs> and there's yeah. a crack down the middle. <laughs> My almost fused together from the tension. Like I almost didn't have a crack. I mean, it just <laughs> all kind of just coagulated into one cheek because That's of the level of tension <laughs> that I felt um, the very first scene that we shot is the scene where I meet Archie in that beautiful canopy off of um, Riverside Park um, to tell him that I wanna make a mixtape. This is the very first scene and it was a sequence of two, two oneers um, that we seen together. And I remember the feeling on set, it's like, everyone was a ball of nerves. Like folks had read the script and they were into it and they were excited. I think we might've done like a rehearsal. I don't like rehearsing too much on set. Yeah. And once we started shooting, um, those cheeks started to separate because a part of me was like, oh, this is it. This is it. Like whatever fears I had, there's like a steep hill coming down to that canopy. As I was coming down the hill, I had to leave them behind me because we started rolling, you know, and it was something about hearing the film fluttering in the can as the camera was rolling. Eric uh, Broncos, my DP, and he's shooting and we're, you know, like just a bundle of nerves. I mean, yeah. didn't you experience that yourself? First oh, yeah. day on set, first feature oh, film? You know, cause you, you, um, you always feel like it's it's not real, like they can take it away from you at any moment. Like, right. you know, they'll come, there's like somebody's gonna come and say, actually, you know, the money didn't we change come through. We changed yeah. our mind. Because you know, we've all heard those stories from directors yes. who are like actually in prep in, you know, freaking Poland, and then it all gets shut down. Um, so that part I was like, I was just basically like waiting for that phone call. Um, and then once you know, it, it happened, there was just this, um, for me, it was just, it was such joy because mm -hmm. like you, I, my, my beginning was in, in New York City 
um, you know, the first few days. And I also shot in um, Riverside Park. And, right. you know, when you're just around your place, your world, yeah. you yeah. know, we've walked, I know that, I mean, Rada has, has such a fine tuned aesthetic when it comes to film. I've spent so much time talking to her about film over the years. Um, and so I know that she, like me, when you walk down the streets of New York, you're always taking snapshots in your head. You're always right. in your head. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Because this yeah. film is, it's like the love for your city is bathed in every frame. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I mean, when, when black people watch the film and say, oh, this movie's black as, and when New Yorkers watch the film and say, yo, this is New York as, I'm, I feel I, the coggles, the cold, dark coggles of my heart are warmed. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, maybe we have this similar experience where I, I, there's a part of me that always knew this is what I'm supposed to be doing, even though I was maybe too afraid to articulate it. Um, not because I mean, not because I didn't think I was, you know, capable, but I mean, filmmaking itself is just intimidating. I mean, you can't make film without resources. And you know, our films are always lacking the resources. And so I think it took me a while to say it, but all along I've been storing things in my head. I've been looking at Cass Safidi's films. I've been looking, studying Bill Gunn and Kathleen Collins yeah. and John, um, you know, Hal Ashby, you know, people who've shot films in New York, um, just studying and taking it in and kind of placing it in the back of my head for when it would be time. So it was one of those things where even though I didn't go to film school, I was studying film the entire time, both on the writing side and just in terms of the aesthetic. And yeah, I just, I just wanted to make a New York film that felt like, you know, it, a, a New York that I belonged in, you know, it's like, I've seen such great, New York films, it always felt like the camera needed to angle just a little bit more to the left and, and open up the frame where we see more people like us in the shot. And so that's what, you know, part of my intention of making this film is to add to that canon, but just, just you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, inventing anything new. People have shot black and white films on 35 millimeter film in New York hundreds of times. I just think, you know, the, maybe the nuance is that the, the camera is, 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 is aimed in a corner that was neglected or not um, heightened. And, um, you know, I was raised by a cinephile on black and white films. And so it's not foreign for me to do film, you know, have uh, make a film in black and white. I also, you know, coming from hip hop culture, which is often presented through a very oversaturated, over-sexualized, over-sensationalized lens, I knew that black and white treatment would bring it to a warm tone, a, a, a more vulnerable, heartfelt tone where, you know, the characters can't hide behind color. You know, they, it, you really just are confronted with a, a, a realistic human character. So I've been, I've been waiting to make this film my whole life, even when I didn't realize it, because I'm, I'm sitting and I'm watching films like The Apartment and just going like, oh my God, look at how luscious that black and white is and not understanding why that moment in watching that film would be so important, but it's all paid off. You have a line in your script in the beginning that says a New York tale in black and white. Yeah, it said it on a title page. <laughs> it said it on the title page. And I, sometimes I wasn't sure if I was do, saying that to remind myself like, 
no matter what people tell you, remember where you what, what it is you intended, or if it was for the reader, like just to set them up in terms of the palette, because in the process of making the film, there were people who, you know, there were just a lot of variables that made this high risk, right? Nobody knows who the hell I am. They, they, they haven't seen me act. They haven't really seen me direct any large body of work. Um, most of the actors are quote unquote unknown. Um, my shoot time, my runtime is over two hours. There's a lot of variables there. And so I would often hear, you know, potential producers or, or financiers say, but does it have to be black or white? Why don't you shoot it in color? And then if you decide to make it in black and white, you, you, you can. And I understand, you know, like before this year, um, and maybe before uh, Roma, you know, like black and white was just rare. And people were, there's a fear that internationally, you know, how is this film gonna do commercially, you know? And then you add this black woman who's not a size two, doesn't have a typical look as the lead. So a lot of times I found people were projecting their fears onto my vision. And I had to make the decision Every time I have a meeting and someone with very good intentions try to convince me to do something else to say, nope, because it says it right here, buddy, a New York tale in black and white. It's on the title page. So it's got to be real. <laughs> that's that's um, we have to give ourselves these guideposts so that when all of the external pressures come on, we always have this thing that keeps us honest, you know, keeps always. us to our vision. Um, you know, I, every single part of this movie um, spoke to me. I, I I was so emotional watching it, not just because you know I love you and I and I was so proud of you, but also because mm. the story. I you just you know you can't help but connect to um, to her journey. Mm. Um, the only thing I wanted was more of you uh, rapping, and because you know people just don't know what you can do. You just they you know they know a little bit, but there's so much more where that comes from. <laughs> Oh, you're being too kind. You're being too <laughs> kind. Please. Can you stop. talk a little bit about, you know, hip hop for you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just, you know, as a, just a being a female MC and, and, you know, where that came from and is there anywhere it's going? You know, is there more? Yeah. I appreciate that question. And, you know, just to speak to, you know, what, what people may have described as like a lack of hip hop or performance in the film, I mean, even that was deliberate, you know, like, some people are like, oh yeah, it's like a black woman's eight mile. And I'm like, well, it's really more like two mile. Cause you know, <laughs> she's, she's actually doesn't have the typical hip hop aspirations. Yeah. I don't think this woman wants to be a rapper. I think that she uses hip hop to get her through what's troubling her and what's frustrating her. So hip hop in the film is more of a meditation. And yeah, there's only a few times I'm actually performing, but it's, all over the movie, whether it's a car outside or kid, the guys freestyling in the basement, performance on stage, me rhyming in with hip hop is all through the movie. It's just not showing up in those very performative ways. Um, but yeah, like very much like my character, um, I, I've, I've always been an MC. You know, I, when I was a teenager, I was pursuing it like professionally and it didn't quite work out that way but it's always been a part of my kind of like spiritual practice, you know, freestyling and stuff like that. And very much like my character, um, it became a source, it became a um, catharsis and a soft place to land 
when I was grieving my mother. You know, the difference between me and the character is she's like a year from her mom's death and my mom passed away in 2013. And it she died right when I was right before I was about to shoot the 40 year version, a web series, right? And I'd written these 10 episodes and I had this mixtape. This idea was that I'd have this mixtape of, of songs that would correlate with the narrative. And after you watched the 10 episodes, you could download a free mixtape. And um, right as we were gonna shoot the first few episodes, she passed away. And uh, my life was devastated. I mean, we had the same birthday. We spoke four or five times a day. I mean, we were the Dorothy Spornak and Sophia Petrillo of Harlem. And so when she died, I really did not feel like, I didn't feel like there was a point in being a performer when my biggest cheerleader wasn't there. And so I went into mourning for a couple of months and then a, a friend a, um, a friend in common, Daniel Alexander Jones, am I saying that right? Yep, yeah. Um, AKA Jamama Jones called me and said, Hey, do you want to, I'm, I'm curating a space at Jack, a performance thing at Jack. Do you want to do excerpts of your one woman show? Happy flower now. And I was just like, I'm not in that space right now. I said, but you know what? I do have this music stuff, you know? And so performing as Rodimus Prime is what got me through the grief of losing my mother. It, you know, I got to, you know, do like hip hop cabaret. So it was like theater. It was like, I'd been a stand-up comic for six years at one point. I was able to bring that to the stage, my storytelling, my hip hop voice to the stage and really like have a release around losing the most important person in my life. And so I, who knew I'd end up performing as Rodimus Prime for two years, you know, just doing different shows here and there. And then when I came back and looked at the web series, it just felt smaller than it needed to be. And that's when I started transforming it into the feature film. But yeah, no, there's music coming. There's music coming okay. because I'm always going to be a performer. And, um, you know, I always say that the film is an origin tale mm -hmm. and it tells like the kind of beginnings of Rodimus Prime. And, you know, I hope to share more of um, the music at some point soon. I'm very happy for myself and the whole world because oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the whole world is pleased. <laughs> um, so in the same way that music, it, it, your film is saturated with music. Um, I want to just want to speak briefly about, you know, the, the aesthetic, your aesthetic is so, um, so sophisticated in my opinion. I know your mother was an artist and your father was a musician. So you are a person that was saturated um, in art and aesthetic um, your whole life. And so it's almost like inevitable that you would yeah. be here. Yeah, I, and I ran from it because, you know, just like my character says when uh, Dee portrayed so lovely by Oswin Benjamin says, oh, it must've been cool to have, you know, artists with parents. And I was like, yeah, it's cool. But you know, there was government cheese and powdered milk and, you know, and that was very much a part of my existence. And, you know, now I look back and I realize that that's real character building, right? And that kind of adversity to be the child of starving artists. At the time, I was very embarrassed by it. And so when it was time to go to high school, I went to a business high school because I was like, I was like, I'm not going to be like these starving artists. Mind <laughs> you, I was in every talent show. I was in every like film class, blah, 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 blah. But I, I... The film in many ways is homage, is paying homage to them and that, that generation of black artists um, 
who ended up raising a generation of Black artists in New York. Um, and now I wear it with a, a badge of honor. Um, what has been part of my struggle actually though is like the struggle of identity because I've been the child of starving artists or struggling artists for so long. And then as a young artist, I was a starving and struggling artist. And now I'm saying this to you from a home that I own. You know what I mean? And that's a blessing that my time as a TV writer and, you know, doing different things and commissions, whatever, allowed me to afford a home I can, I can, um, I can afford and be comfortable in, especially in this pandemic. It's a safe space to be. But, you know, so much of my identity was that struggle. And a lot of times that adversity is what fed the storytelling. And so I think I went through a little identity crisis where it's like, what is my storytelling, you know, when that part of my identity has slowly kind of faded away. And the other part of the, I think the identity crisis was feeling, having these opportunities for a second, I felt separate from my family. I felt like different and felt some, I, I felt definitely felt survivor's remorse. I mean, survivor's remorse, but I definitely felt the guilt of like surpassing them, you know, just in terms of success and, and just where I am financially, you know, but I know that this was my parents' dream is that I would surpass them as an artist, that I could support myself. You know, I could have an apartment in New York and a home in Baltimore. That's what they wanted. And so I am, um, you know, I'm slowly sloughing off that struggling artist thing, but the beauty of it is that it gave me a story to tell and it gives me an opportunity to shine a light on that generation. Like all my aunties and uncles, you know, Jerry Eastman, um, Art Lewis, uh, all these jazz musicians, uh, Charlotte Ka, I mean, just all of these amazing artists that I was raised around who struggled so that we could be here in this moment. Because when I say, when I say we, I mean all of the young people I was raised with. Mm-hmm. This is this is our moment. Yeah. Um, but there's a moment in the film that is, you know, I have so many favorite moments, but the one I think that means the most to me is when I'm walking back to my mother's apartment um, and I walk in the door and the music here is my father's jazz from his melodic art tet album. Mm-hmm. And you, I walk in further and there's my mother's artwork on the walls and that's my brother. And so the film for me will always be this archive of like the blank legacy. And I feel like it's probably my proudest moment to be able to archive my family as artists. It's profound. It's a, Thank and you. It, it's a privilege, you know, that um, to witness it, but also I know you must feel so privileged that you got to do that. So privileged. I get very emotional when I watch that scene because I'm like, oh my God, they're in the room with me. You know, like my my parents are physically have passed on, but um, th- it has actually turned me into more of a spiritual person because I refuse to believe that my relationship is over with them. And um, I'll always, no matter what I do next, I'll we'll always have this thing together. But you know what I think is interesting and I, that I wanted to talk to you about real quick is, you know, the second film, um, Mary Haram, who is like my big sis in cinema, we were having a great conversation um, for Filmmaker Magazine, actually. And um, the, the, she said, it's the second film, Rada. It's the second film. 
And at first I was like, what are you talking about? But it makes sense that that is when you really become a director because so much about that first film is about like, I don't know, throwing caution to the wind and, you no, know, it's like- so true. It's an explosion of, of expression, right? It's like a lifetime's worth of images, of point of view, of, of aesthetic, and yes. it just explodes. Um, it you know, explodes. It's the it's ultimate everybody. catharsis as an yeah. artist. Like as you've been artist. waiting, I mean, and, and I'm making my first film in my 40s, waiting my entire life to say this thing. Now what? I know. And, and then so also, I, you feel like you used all your best, your best. Right. <laughs> I don't know, no, I mean, is there are five-year-olds in the audience? Like, so, like you used all your best stuff, all the things that you've, you've been meditating on for so long. And so then what do you put in the second one? <laughs> well, what I thought was interesting is that she said that that is what really, that's when your filmmaking career begins. Because, and I know it's true for me because I will be stepping away from my personal story. I also don't plan on being in my films again. I mean, I just have too much respect for actors. Um, but um, I, I did this as a way to get, behind, get more and more behind the camera. Yeah. So there is, while I was uh, nervous about making the first film, the second film, girl, I mean, are you having that same thing where it's like, oh, well, no, I mean, especially when, you know, you and I are fortunate in that we, we love our movies. Yeah. You know, we, we um, you know how people always say, like, you never stop, you abandon. We stopped. We were both like, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. You know what I mean? We were, we, we were happy. So then, you know, what do you, what, what comes next? Um, I, uh, I'm excited for both of us to see what, what comes next. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, casting because both of us used a lot of our our favorite theater actors in our yep. in our film as well, um, and you know I, I, can you talk a little bit about how you made your casting some of your casting decisions? Yeah, I mean, so you look at I'll, I'll just talk about for now my two leading men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Oswin Benjamin, who plays D my producer slash lover, and then Peter Kim, who plays Archie, who is my agent slash best friend. Um, Arch, uh, Peter is someone I've known for a number of years as a theater actor. And I feel like I got acquainted with him maybe 10 years ago, um, where he became a dramaturg um, on two plays I was working on where I just wanted to be, I had Korean characters and I wanted some very authentic, you know, uh, uh, an authentic, you know, voice in there to challenge me around the representation. And the, he had such a level of honesty that I was just like, I don't, this doesn't happen all the time where people are this honest with me. Archie was initially written as a 20 something year old skinny white guy, you know? And so that the tension between us would be more generational. You know, like I'm turning 40, he's 22 and he's telling me what I should be doing in my career. After this experience with Peter Kim, I was like, why isn't he Archie? So I actually rewrote the character to make him someone who I had known for many years, but we had grown into different places. And even though he was my rep, my rep in the film, you know, there was this tension around our friendship and success, right? And so I worked with 
I was lucky enough to work with Peter at the Sundance um, uh, Director's Lab in 2017. And it, it just was very clear that it was his part. So that part was cast. Um, with Oswin, initially I had, there was another, Oswin is a rapper by trade, an amazingly talented rapper. I had another rapper in mind for the role who um, had to go off on a tour. But the reason I think I wanted a rapper um, is because when it came to this acting thing, we'd be equally yoked. You know what I mean? Like there's a talent there, raw talent, but not any training. And so when this first person fell out, I went online and I literally went to the Google search engine and I typed in New York rappers <laughs> and like a, a hundred thousand people who had already known had come up. Yep. And so I kind of was stalking them and then he popped up and I was like, oh my God. And so those were two people that I kind of focused on or brought to the table. And then all of these other ma amazing talents, um, although Imani Lewis, who plays um, Elaine, I saw her in Rashad Ernesto Green's movie, Immature, and I just stalked her after the screen. I was like, I want you to audition for a movie. But everybody else who came to the table, Jessica Daniels, you know, she's an amazing casting director um, who is from New York, New York native. So she knew, I, you know, we had this conversation about like, Jessica, I can't, I can't do my city dirty. Like it has to feel like a real New York film because how many times have you seen films that were set in New York and either the, the background casting was sparse or there were people in there who were more like caricatures of New Yorkers, you know, and because she's from New York and had cast a bunch of films, um, Miseducation of Cameron Post. She did um, Tyresha Poe's film, Sela in the Space. I just was like, she's my girl. And she she found me those young people, those amazing young people. She's the person who put Jacob Ming Trent, you know, one of our favorite actors in front of me who ended up playing the homeless guy. Um, she's the person who suggested Reed Bernie. She was like, I, she was like, I think for the producer, you might want to do a little bit of stunt, you know, put, put, put a star in there. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Reed was amazing. Yeah. And he knew because he'd come from the theater, he knew that character he played was an amalgam of a bunch of theater characters, a bunch of people that we know. Yeah. He knew those people and he had been in yeah. content, you know, yeah. so we built that character together. Like he knew exactly, you know, what the send up was. And um, it just ended up being like, what I feel is like a real reflection of the different energies and voices in the city. At one point, one of my, a potential producer that I was working with was concerned about the length of the film and all stuff. And, you know, people are just trying to help. They were like, where could we cut? Maybe do we need the kids? Can you imagine no. this movie? without Hiskiri Velasquez, Antonio Ortiz, TJ Adams, Imani Lewis. So like heart. They brought so much heart and realness. They are the New York. Like yeah. through them, you get that authentic New York voice. And, and again, like I'm playing a version of myself and I was a teaching artist for 20 years. I can't I leave that. Yeah. So I, but the process of, of casting this film and also acting in it gave me such a profound, an even deeper respect for actors and what they do. I started calling them my co-authors because I realized like, you know, I think we take for granted what it is for someone, the right person to walk in the room and you see them and they read the lines and it's almost like 
the script just melts away and the world is there. And so I, I want to become a better director for actors, you know, and, and, and making actors feel like you're a filmmaker too. (laughs) Like we wouldn't be here if we didn't have the people to, you know what I mean? That's so true. Um, I want to say one thing, um, because having, you know, having been an actor, what you say about, you know, when you hear them, um, when you hear the right actors inhabit your language, inhabit the character, the script melts away. But I want to say as a former actor, the script can't melt away. You can't inhabit that language if the writing isn't there to begin with. Mm, mm, mm. You know, don't shortchange yourself in terms of like the, the, the brilliance and the specificity of the script and of the characters that you wrote, because that's how come actors can inhabit and make you go, oh my God, that's, that's it. You know, so you know be aware yeah, no. And I, and I, to speak to that, sometimes I really do, listen, the film is getting a lot of love. Looks like the critics love it. Yep. Most importantly, the people love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wish the actors in this movie got more shine. And the reason I say that is, I think people think, now mind you, there are uh, three people who talk to camera as the kind of um, the gospel choir of New York. Those are real people. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is playing a role. And, you know, someone like Oswin never acted a day in his life. The first time he ever read any dramatic dialogue was in my audition mm-hmm. for my movie. I wish people knew what a talent he was. Like, they know after seeing this movie, they have to know. But, but what I want them to know is like, he invented that character. We created that together. He's not aloof. He is, sorry, Oswin. He's a goofball. <laughs> he's the one on set making all the jokes and talking and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And everyone, so I had to look at him like, come on you know he's not that character and and I always compare it to when Gabourey said about hey Gabby when she played Precious and everyone thought oh wow Lee Daniels got this girl to treat and then she was on some late night show I don't know it was Jimmy Fallon Jimmy Kimmel and she started talking as herself and yeah. people were like we thought this girl was and she's talking and you know she's from New York but she kind of talks like this and she talks really fast and blah 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 she's talking about all her crushes she was not precious at all and Correct. so I that's my only like little what you're talking level, about you know? what you're talking about is something that I feel like we we are constantly going to going to have to be highlighting so for example the actors in Straight Outta Compton right I felt like there's some of those people should have gotten so much shine, but because Corey. of Hawkins, because of racism, there is this assumption that when you know black people are playing, you know, are keeping it real on screen, that they must just that just must be who they are. You know, and it's just it's a talent, it's not a that, skill. Corey right. went to Corey Corey is a has an MFA. He's a pro, you know, he's Juilliard. deeply trained actor, Shakespearean trained. actor. Um, right. The reason that you believe them is because they are good actors, not because we just, you know, black people only know how to bring people off the street, you know, on right. in front of the camera. So I, I completely hear what you're saying because I feel like it's not part of our life's work as directors to 
keep on highlighting that we actually have craft. Everything we do is not just sort of some sort of instinct, some kind of primal, you know, <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> instinct that we're doing in front of the camera. It's craft. It's, it's a passion that has been part of our, our life. Aesthetic is something that we care about. It's all over your film. Um, you know, and so it, it's, a, it's a shame that, you know, we still feel that we have to clarify that because of, you know, of racist perceptions. I mean, I was there with Eric Bronco, like for hours each night going over the shot list and yeah. really like getting clear about like, you know, him help, you know, helping me find the language to describe exactly what I want for the aesthetic. Like there's a lot of work. It wasn't just like, okay, five, Five, three, two, go. Everyone start dancing. Move. Yes. It's a, it's a show. Everyone's performing. No, it's, I mean, it's. Like, yeah, like everybody just following your instincts. So just so no. It's wet. And, you know, um, but something did happen. Um, you know, you had asked me about my first day. And mm-hmm. now I'm thinking about my best, worst day, right? Where um, we were towards the end of shooting is the scene when Oswin, D and I are outside of the bodega and um, there was a miscommunication about permits. And I, I had a really clear picture of how I wanted the final shot to look. And because we didn't have the permits that we needed, we had to kind of just work around. And I was not in a good mood. I was tired and you know, I'm having to talk to people off camera and then be on camera, whatever. And I was just melting down. And so I remember we were, we probably went over that night, which I could still see my producers like, ah. Um, And by the time we were done and shut down and I was on in the cab on my way from Brownsville back to Harlem, I was just a bucket of tears. Like it was probably to me, my greatest failure in terms of shooting the film, right? I just felt like, I didn't rise to the occasion. I let the emotions get the best of me. I, you know, was too tired. I was this and that. And then, and then, you know, it, it's all about perception. There are all these people standing behind the camera, and I, at that point, because I started kind of, um, my feathers were ruffled and I was kind of falling apart. I thought everyone was looking at me like, yeah, whatever. Like I could do a better job than her. Like, but, so yeah. And so I cry, 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 and I. It was this level of embarrassment. The only thing I could compare it to is like when you're in junior high school and something really terrible happens. You're just like, I'm not going, mommy, I don't care. I'm not going back. I can't. This is, and that's how I felt. I was like, I'm done. You know, this is it. I blah, blah, blah. But then this weird thing happened <laughs> where I woke up the next day and I was like, I don't care. I'm going back to set because the film at that point was more important than my feelings and more important than my embarrassment. And that's when I knew I was a filmmaker because I had faced what I felt was my greatest failure in front of everybody. And there was a part of me that the next day didn't give up. You know what I mean? I was like, I got to make this film. And so, you know, I think filmmaking is to me about the skill, like, yeah, talent. Yeah. Okay. It's talent, but it's the skill it's 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 the strategy but when that adversity shows up you still being able to move forward in spite of 
your ego being bruised or you looking a certain way. And that was when I was like, and this, I had already shot 15, 16 days at that point, you know, of a 20 day shot shoot. And that was when the filmmaker was born is because I had my worst moment in front of everybody and I still had a film to make, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, talent, (laughs) talent gets you so far. It really does take a certain personality. And I, and I always remember that when I read somebody say something like, Hey, Rada, good film. But, uh, what you really should have done was, and I go, yeah, you keep talking that shit. You go make a feature film with a cast of 190 people. Then we could talk, then you could come and critique my shit. But until then, which is going to be never, you will stay behind your computer screen and critique my film you know um Rada, the other thing i want to just say because i we all that moment is so real it's so profound where because you that, there's nothing like being that exposed as a, as a director it's just and then of course you because you you have you know uh ovaries made of steel you also <laughs> right that's <laughs> my band by the way we're opening at coachella next year ovaries, ovaries of, steel. of steel but go um, ahead but the thing is, the other part of directing um, is that you have to be a leader and you have to keep everybody connected to your vision. That's right. right. Um, and so, you know, so that when, 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 you, when people have a shitty day, when you have a shitty day, they still believe in what you're trying to do and they That's will right. and give you everything. And that is, you did that. You, you had a vision that people believed in because it was an independent film, right? So it wasn't like everybody was making a ton of money. They were there because of you, they were there because of your story and they were there because you, they knew you had so much value and Mm. it needed to be supported. So um, I'm just, I'm so, so proud of you and so happy. I feel the same way. I feel the same exact way about you. Like, I'm just so grateful that we were, you know, a lot present for each other in this journey because it is such a specific experience that not everyone understands. Um, And, you know, uh, I think that people, there's a little luster on me right now, but at the end of the day, there is work. It is work that I'm doing. It is work that you're doing. Like, you know, like when I think about, I'm glad you're done with the film so I can say this, but when I think about the amount of balls, I'm just going to say it, it takes to lead a story about one of our most important cultural icons, Aretha Franklin. I'm just in awe of you. It's not something I would have even, t- I wouldn't have even looked. If so, hey, Rod, I know, uh-uh, I can't, I can't look, I can't look because it's Aretha. Um, and listen, what I'll say to the people who are watching is I've already seen um this film and it's it's so good and it's such I think Aretha is like okay baby Mm -hmm. she's not she's not saying beautiful gowns (laughs) gowns. she is I I really feel like you you honored her as the 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 icon and the ancestor that she is I'm so so proud of you and you know like you know 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, this film would have been directed by someone else, maybe not a black woman, 
you know? And so what it means to have a black woman at the helm of that story and to do it with grace and nuance and innovation the way that you did, I'm just so very proud of you. And I can't wait for people to see this movie and see these performances. Marlon, oh, girl. Mm. No. <laughs> so this, anybody who doesn't know Rada, this is right here, this generosity, this is her moment, her DJ panel, and she's given the last minutes over. No, because who am I without my community? I know. I and who without my community of Black women? Like, I always say, hashtag trust Black women. Mm-hmm. And um, as I say it, the, whatever. Um, you know, like, really quickly, I have to shout out Lena Wade, who the reason she was the right producers for me is because maybe she she sees me and herself. And where this Black woman who's never directed or acted in a feature film before, blah, 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 is that's a high risk for other people. For her, it was a no-brainer. You know what I mean? So it's like, we definitely, at the end of the day, there's nothing like the support of another Black woman. And you know, you really, whew, you really were a beacon for me. Um, I remember, I think we talked like somewhere afterwards and I really felt like, and this is not to belittle the mothers of America, but I really did feel like a 400 pound baby had come out of my body and I could not move. I could not physically move. And you had not yet had that experience, but you as a theater director, you know what I mean? It's this idea of like handing your whole body over. Like you knew what that feeling was like, but you also knew what it was like to make work as a black woman. It's such a specific experience. And so I'm I'm standing here, but it's you standing here, right? And it's Lena standing here. Like we are each other's mirror and, um, I would not be here if it weren't for black women. So I'm going to, I'm going to champion my sisters till the end of time. Cause like I said, 10 years ago, it yeah. meant somebody else directing this movie about our queen Aretha, yeah. <laughs> which now I think maybe there's a precedent being set. Like, please don't, don't pick up the life story of our black icons and not consider us in the storytelling. That's right. That's we right. deserve to be there. And I, I also feel like this, what what 40-year-old version uh, did and its success, one more time, let's the powers that be know that our stories have universal appeal um, uh, in their specificity and that we have value, you know, that, that um, there's just, there's, there's so much that we have to offer in terms of storytelling. Um, and we're you know, worth risk. We're absolutely worth the risk. I think people are so nervous about the variables and, you know, like, I think it's why certain celebrities with certain Instagram numbers, you know, it's like, well, they already have a built-in audience. What is it going to take to cultivate the audience? Well, if you invest the time in the creative and then put a little something behind getting the word out, that audience is going to come. This is a year, my movie was... My movie came out in October on Netflix, premiered at Sundance in June of 2020. And we're still talking about it. Mm -hmm. I think that that has a lot to do with the people, like the audience, they keep bringing it up and 
they keep it alive. right they know you got well we what about our black and white film what about 40-year-old version you know in terms of that conversation or black women leads or women who who are of a certain age behind the camera in front of the camera and so it's just been a really great moment and i hope that um more and more people are inspired to to tell their own stories or dust off that passion you know like i think that the both of us a testament to like having a certain career path and making a pivot you know it's not to say that because you were such a dynamic theater director that you're necessarily going to you know thrive as a filmmaker but you know it's like just when i think oh well Liesl, it, you know, she's mastered directing theater and she's blah, blah, blah. I see your work as a, a filmmaker. And I was like, wow, you, this is what you were supposed to evolve into. So same with you as a, you know, as a playwright into a, a into a, a film, a screenwriter and a film, I mean, a television writer for, for a while, absolutely proven yourself in that field. Um, mm. We are um, actually a little pastime. But oh, okay. I know, right? We could do this all night long. Girl, child. <laughs> but I, I just want to uh, wrap up by one more time um, just saying that your film is a gift to all of us. Oh, the intensity so. of response from all over the world um, speaks Brazil. To, to your value, to your, you know, the, the heart. I think the thing is about you, Rada, that no one can deny is how much heart you have. Uh, and it's all over your film. Um, the love uh, that you have for your people, for your family, there's so much legacy in that movie uh, um, that is inspiring to all of us because we, you know, uh, we thank all you. pray and hope that the line that we come from will somehow um, not be forgotten. And you, you made a film where it, it will stay alive forever, so. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. I'm, Thank you, Liesl, for being a part of this conversation. Like, um, you know, I'm kind of winding down on the talking tour and this is like a wonderful final stop to make. I, I want to thank you. I want to thank the DGA. Um, it meant so much to get that card mm -hmm. in 2019 to be a DGA member. It's It means so much to to as a rite of passage and to be a part of this community. So thank you to the DGA and, um, all the filmmakers out there, like, you know, it's it's high time to tell the stories. We we need story now more than ever, you know. And so thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having Rada. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone stay safe. Good night. Love you, Diesel. Thanks for listening to another DGA QA. If you'd like to hear more, the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Tara Mealy, Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, and Nate Parker. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.